Section 6 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Tiberius, A.D. 14-37, to 37, Part 2. Still more outspoken was the grief when the chief mourners reached the shores of Italy and passed in sad procession through the towns. At the sight of the widowed Agrippina and the children gathered round the funeral urn that held his ashes, all classes of society vied with each other in the tokens of their sympathy. There was no flattery in such signs of mourning, for few believed that Tiberius was sorry, and many thought that he was glad at the loss they regretted. Was it grief that kept him in the palace, or fear lest men should read his heart? Was it due respect to his brave nephew Germanicus, to give such scant show of funeral honors, and to frown at the spontaneous outburst of his people's sorrow? Was it love of justice, or a sense of guilt that made him so slow to punish Piso's crime, so quick to discourage the zeal of his accusers? They could only murmur and suspect, for nothing certain could be known. At Piso's trial there was evidence enough of angry words and bitter feelings, of acts of insubordination, almost of civil strife. But no proof that Germanicus was murdered, still less that Tiberius was privy to the deed. It was indeed whispered abroad that the accused had evidence enough to prove that he only did what he was bidden. But if so, he feared to use it, and before the trial was over he died by his own hand. The popular suspicion against Tiberius was no mere afterthought of later days, when Rome had learnt to know the darker features of his character. From the first they had never loved him, and the more they saw, the less they liked him. He seemed of dark and gloomy temper, with no grace or geniality of manner, shunning the pleasures of the people, and seldom generous or open-handed. He had even an ungracious way of doing what was right, and spoiled the favor by his way of granting it. There was such reserve and constraint in what he said that men thought him a profound dissembler and imputed to him crimes he had no thought of. They seemed to have divined the cruelty that was still latent and to have detested him before his acts deserved their hate. Even in the early years the satires current in the city and the epigrams passed from mouth to mouth show us how intense was the dislike and soon we see enough to justify it. One of the most alarming features of the times in which men traced his influence was the rapid spread of professional accusers of the delatores, of whom we read indeed before, but who now became a power in the state. The Roman law of early times looked to private citizens to expose wrongdoing and to impeach civil or political offenders. Sometimes it was moral indignation, oftener it was the bitterness of party feeling, and oftener still the passion of ambition that brought them forward as accusers. The great men of the Republic were constantly engaged in legal strife. Cato, for example, was put on his defense some four and forty times, and appeared still oftener as accuser. It was commonly the first step in a young man's career to single out a prominent member of the rival party, to charge him with some political offense, and to prove in the attack his courage or knowledge of the laws. 
this practice naturally intensified the bitterness of party struggles and often led to family feuds it took to some extent the place of the dueling of modern times and led more than once to a sort of hereditary vendetta it oftener served the passions of a party than the real interests of justice and prized as it was as a safeguard and privilege of freedom fostered license more than liberty yet as if this tendency was not strong enough already measures were taken to confirm it more sordid motives were appealed to and hopes of money bribes were held out to spur on the accuser's zeal these it may be seemed more needful as moral sympathies were growing stronger and the party passions of the commonwealth were cooling down certainly the meaner motives must have been more potent in the days of the early empire when men came forward to enforce the sumptuary and marriage laws which were almost universally disliked we hear little of the delatores as a class under augustus but in the days of his successor they became almost at once of prominent importance the wider range given to the laws of treason the vagueness of the crimes that fell within their scope and the terror of the penalties that threatened the accused armed the informers with a class of weapons which they had not known before with a ruler like tiberius they became quite a new wheel in the political machinery it suited his reserve to keep himself in the background while the objects of his fear or his suspicions were attacked to learn the early stages of the trial from men who had no official connection with himself while the senate or the law courts were responsible for the result and he could step in at last to temper if he pleased the rigour of the sentence he did not own them for his instruments refused even to speak to them directly on the subject but with instinctive shrewdness they interpreted his looks divined his wishes and acted with eagerness upon a word that fell from any confidant whom he seemed to trust no wonder that their number grew apace for it seemed an easy road to wealth and honour settling even by threes and fours upon their victims they disputed the precedence of the attack for if they were successful the goods of the condemned might be distributed among them and when an enemy of caesar fell quite a shower of official titles was rained upon them they came from all classes alike some there were of ancient lineage and good old names some were adventurers from the provinces who had come to push their fortunes in the capital some even of the meanest rank who crowded into a profession where a ready tongue and impudence seemed the only needful stock in trade for all were trained in early youth to speak and plead and hold their own in the keen fence of words in the days of the republic all must learn to speak who would make their way in public life and the training of the schools remained the same when all besides was changed around them the orator's harangues had been silenced in the forum no cicero might hope to sway the crowd or guide the senate but they disputed still and declaimed and laboured at the art of rhetoric as if oratory were the one end and aim of life when life opened on them in real earnest they soon discovered how slowly honest and unaided talent could hope to make its way to fame the conditions of the times were changed and one only way was left to copy the great orators of earlier days they could yet win wealth and honour and make the boldest spirits quail and be a power in the state and gain perhaps the emperor's favour 
by singling out some man of mark, high in office or in rank, and furbishing afresh against him the weapons drawn from the armory of the laws of treason. If they were not weighted with nice scruples, if they could work upon the ruler's fears or give substance to his vague suspicions, if they were dexterous enough to rake up useful scraps of evidence and put their lies into a telling form, then they might hope to amass great fortune speedily and rise to high official rank. Did any wish to pay off an old debt of vengeance or to force a recognition from the classes that despised them or to retrieve a shattered fortune and to find a royal road to fame? It needed only to swell the ranks of the informers, to choose a victim and invent a crime. If no plausible story could be found to ruin him, it was always possible to put into his mouth some threats against the emperor's life, some bold lampoon upon his vices which they found already to hand. The annals of the time are full of tales which show how terrible was the power they wielded. Through every social class and circle the poison of suspicion spread, for every friend might prove a traitor and be an informer in disguise. It might be perilous to speak about affairs of state, for the frankest words of confidence might be reported and be dangerously misconstrued. It might be dangerous to be too silent, for fear of being taken for a malcontent. A man's worst enemies might be in his home, for every house was full of slaves, who learned or guessed the master's secrets, and whose eyes were always on the watch to divine the inmost feelings of his heart. In a few minutes, by a few easy words, they could wreck their vengeance for the slights of years, gain their freedom even by their master's death, and with it such a slice of what was his as would make them rich beyond their wildest dreams. No innocence could be quite secure against such foes, for it was as easy to invent as to report a crime. No council chamber was so safe but that some traitorous ear could lurk unseen, for in one trial it appeared that three senators were hidden between the ceiling and the roof to hear the conversation of the man whom they accused. There was no kind of life without its dangers. To eschew politics was not enough. The poet's vanity might lure him to his ruin if he ventured to compose an elegy upon the prince's son when the noble subject of his verse was sick, not dead. The historian's life might pay the penalty for a few bold words of freedom, as Cremudius Cordus had to die for calling the murderers of Caesar the last of the old Romans. Philosophy itself might be suspected, for a lecture on the whole duty of man might recognize another standard than the emperor's will and pleasure, and handle his special faults too freely. There was no escape from dangers such as these. In earlier days men might leave Rome before the trial was quite over, and shun the worst rigor of the law by self-chosen banishment from home. But the strong arm of the imperial ruler could reach as far as the farthest limits of the empire, and flight seemed scarcely possible beyond. One only road of flight lay open, and to that many had recourse. When the fatal charges had been laid, men often did not stay to brook the ignominy of the trial or face the informer's torrent of invectives, but had their veins opened in the bath, or by poison or the sword ended the life which they despaired to save. They hoped to rescue by their speedy death 
some little of their fortune for their children and to secure at least the poor advantage of a decent funeral for their bodies it was the emperor's suspicious temper that increased so largely the influence of the delatores for there was one man who gained his trust and gained it only to abuse it lucius aelius sejanus had long since won favour by artful insight into character and affected zeal and self-devotion his flattery was too subtle to offend his duplicity so skilful as to mask completely his own pride and ambition while he fed the watchful jealousy of his master by whispered doubts of others his father a knight of tuscan stock had been prefect of the imperial guards ten battalions of which were quartered in different places round the city when the sun was raised to the same rank his first act of note was to induce the emperor to concentrate the guards in one camp near the gates as the permanent garrison of rome that done he spared no pains to win the good will of the soldiers to secure the devotion of the officers and raise his tools to posts of trust to the real power thus secured the rapidly increasing favour of tiberius lent visible authority in official language he was sometimes named as the partner of the ruler's labours senators and nobles of old family courted his patronage with humble words official titles were bestowed at his discretion and spies and informers speedily were proud to take rank in his secret service while ambitious hopes were growing within him with the self-confidence of a proud and resolute nature the passion of revenge came in to define and to mature them drusus the young son of tiberius whom we read of as coarse choleric and cruel happened in a brawling mood to strike sejanus on the face the blow was one day to be washed out in blood but for the moment it was borne in silence he made no sign to rouse suspicion but turned to Lavilla, the prince's wife and plied her with his wily words seconded by winning grace and personal beauty the weak woman yielded to the tempter flinging away her womanly honour and with it tenderness and scruple she sacrificed her husband to her lover with her help he had drusus poisoned and so removed the heir presumptive to the throne next came the turn of agrippina and her children between the widowed mother and tiberius a certain coolness had grown up already which it was easy to increase her frank impetuous high-souled nature could not breathe freely in the palace proud of her husband's memory and the promise of her children and too reliant on the people's love she could not stoop to weigh her words to curb her feelings and school herself to be wary and submissive his dark looks and freezing manner stung her often to impatience and she allowed herself to show too clearly the want of sympathy between them the ill-timed warmth of agrippina's friends the dark insinuations of sejanus widened the breach already made and each was made to fear the other and hint at poison or at treason the thunder-clouds had gathered fast and the storm would soon have burst between them had not augustus stayed his hand and stepped in with milder counsels jealous as he may have been the son still submitted to the mother's sway he feared an open rupture while he chafed at her interference and restraint then the schemer thought of parting them away from rome and from his mother tiberius would breathe more freely and lean more on his trusted servant 
and he himself also could mature his plans more safely if he were not always watched by that suspicious eye. For twelve years the emperor had scarcely left the city, but he was weary at last of moving in the same round of public labours, of meeting always the same curious eyes, full as it seemed of fear or of mistrust. The counsels of Sejanus took root and bore their fruit in season. At first Rome only heard that its ruler was travelling southward, then that he was at Capri, the picturesque island in the Bay of Naples, which had tempted Augustus with its charms, and passed by purchase into his estates. Soon they thought he would be back again, but time went on, and still he came not, and though he talked at times of his return, and came twice almost within sight, he never set foot within their walls again. After three years he heard at Capri of his mother's death, A.D. 29, but he was not present at her funeral, long neglected even to give the needful orders, and said it not the last wishes of her will. Her death removed the only shield of Agrippina and her children. One after another their chief adherents had been swept away. The old generals that loved them had been struck down by the informers. The relentless jealousy of the emperor and Sejanus had for years set spies upon them to report and exaggerate unguarded words. All the charges which had been gathered up meantime were at once laid before the Senate in a message full of savage harshness. The mother and her two eldest children were hurried off to separate prisons, with litters closed, lest the memory of Germanicus should stir the people. They languished there a while, then perished miserably by sword and famine. There was another whom the emperor had long looked at with unfriendly eyes. Asinius Gallus, a marked figure in the higher circles, had taken to his house the wife whom Tiberius had been forced indeed to put away, yet loved too well to feel kindly to the man who took his place. He had been named by the last emperor among the few who might aspire to the throne, and was possibly the child the promise of whose manhood had been heralded by the fourth eclogue of Virgil. He was certainly forward and outspoken, with something of presumption even in his flattery. He had often given offence by hasty words, and above all in the early scene of mutual distrust and fear in the Senate House, he had tried to force Tiberius to use plain language and drop his hypocritic trifling. He was made to pay a hard penalty for his boldness. The emperor stayed his hand for years, allowed him to pay his court and join in the debates among the rest, and even summoned him to Capri to his table. But even while he sat there the news came that the Senate had condemned him at the bidding of their master, and he left the palace for a prison. For years he pined in utter loneliness, while the death which he would have welcomed as a boon was still denied him. End of section 6